So God and God's good and goods, those are the sort of confusions I want to talk about today, between the God and the gods of the city, or the good and the goods of the city. Uh, For those of you who are interested in etymology, I think this lexicographical relationship between the uh, the gods and the goods is something that works especially in English. Uh, But I think it's a useful relationship. Uh, And to get straight to the point, I'm hoping to argue today that in order to understand the goods of the city, perhaps even the good of the city, we could stand to think about the gods of the city. And today I want to suggest uh, a broader historical context within which to think about this. And and, um, I will say that I am trying to pull together some things that I have not pulled together before. And I will also say that I'm embarrassed to say that I normally find myself talking to architects. And so I apologize in advance if I, if I get this wrong. So I've, I've been trying to imagine uh, how to get outside my own little world. Um, so if I assume too little or assume too much, please forgive me and, and, and tell me. Um, I'm also going to be doing all of this rather quickly. So I apologize if it seems rushed. Uh, next week I want to come back and, and uh, look a little bit more closely at some specific contemporary case studies. But this evening I want to start with, with what is in the global imagination, perhaps the world's uh, single most canonical architectural monument, chosen as the basis for UNESCO's logo to represent all of humanity's constructive and artistic efforts, right? The Greek temple, but not just any Greek temple. So although the the available letters of the English acronym for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization mean that this comes across as a hexa-style temple, so six columns across, uh, we are reliably informed that the intended reference is a specific eight columns, so octa-style temple, here in a well-known 1846 painting, of which the original is in Munich, by the German-Greek revival architect Leo von Klenzing. This is a a reconstructed and somewhat idealized view of what is it? Folks, do you recognize this? Anybody? Yeah, okay, so the Athenian uh, Acropolis, the high city Acropolis, uh, and in the foreground, the Areopagus, the the hill of Ares, god of war. Uh, This is perhaps the best known of of such reconstructions, seen perhaps uh, in the golden evening light of what is imagined as a a gently declining civilization sometime in the first century, uh, and set against the landscape of Attica beyond. Now, if you look closely at this, and don't don't hesitate, if you need to get up at any point and, and come and peer at the screen, uh, please do. Um, if you look closely, you'll notice right away that this landscape is populated both by people and by gods. This is both the reputation of ancient Athens, uh, as we have learned it, and 
the reality of this particular painting. And above it all, right here, is Athena herself. Right, Athena, patron goddess of Athens. In English, it's Athena and Athens. In Greek, it's Athene and Athenai, singular and plural. The city and the god share a name. Apparently, the scholars of antiquity used to argue about which one came first. Right? Was the city named after the god, or was the god named after the city? And there seems to be consensus today uh, that, in fact, the god is named after the city, as elsewhere. So Mycenae, for instance, gives its name to the goddess Mycenae. Thebes gives its name to the goddess Thebe, uh, and so forth, like parents giving their names uh, to their children. This is significant, I think. Uh, the city nurtures its gods. But ultimately, the, the identification works in both directions. In other words, the, the cities of antiquity belonged to their gods, and those gods belonged to their cities. Athens belonged to Athena, and Athena to Athens. And here she is, right, guarding the approach, the, the bronze figure, the massive bronze figure of Athena Promachos, Athena who, Athena who stands in the front line. Um, Athena who stands in the front line of battle. Uh, so naming the goddess, especially that epithet from a cost, naming the goddess is an important part of articulating her power. And there she is with shield, helmet, and spear. So these are military attributes, yes? And we're told by the archaeologists that this site, the Acropolis, was not only the center of Athenian civic life and uh, religious identity and practice, it was also a defensive site. If for a moment we assume the position of the armed protagonist up here in the wildly popular video game Assassin's Creed, <laughs> uh, which by this point for all I know may have su superseded Leo von Klenze's view in the public imagination, but is actually strikingly similar uh, in its character and even in its light. If we place ourselves up here, we can see with particular clarity what we knew already you can look up from below, yes, but you can also look down from above. That is, the value of being up on the Acropolis has to do not only with the fact that it's hard for enemies to fight an uphill battle, but also with the fact that the view from above bestows a certain kind of power, a certain authority over that which is laid out below. And this is true not only for the site's strategic value as a defensive position, but also for its capacity to make visible the authority of the goddess Athena. In fact, it's hard, I think, to pry those two aspects apart, just as you can't remove the armor from the figure of the goddess. You might say that metaphysical and physical security belong together. So the well-being, the good of the city, and the god of the city are already being identified. And of course, that which we can say of the goddess of the city can be said also for the citizens of the city. They too, after all, belong up here. And they too can look out over the landscape of Attica, out to the sea beyond, which you can just see glimpses of. 
to the sea that is dominated at the high point of Athenian power by the Athenian navy. So her authority is theirs also. Right? The occupation of this site by the goddess and her architectures is a counterpart to the establishment of authority over the rural landscape of the imagination. And after all, we also know that the architecture of the Acropolis is a statement of Athenian supremacy not only over, say, the Persians, but also over other Greeks, right? In 480 BC, the Persians had sacked Athens and its temples, destroying, uh, of course, the old temple to Athena that stood on the Acropolis. So for a while, the ruined site of the old temple was left in place as a testament to Persian aggression. And then from 447, under Pericles, the new temple, which is behind us in this image, was built as a testament to Athenian supremacy. But one of the big debates had to do with whether its construction was funded by the misappropriation of funds paid by Athenian allies toward a common defense against future Persian aggression. In other words, whether this architecture also makes legible to those who know how to read it an Athenian attitude of imperialism. Now, this is a sort of darker counterpart to the assertion by Plutarch, whom we may have reason to distrust, uh, that Pericles' building program on the Acropolis involved the collaboration of the entire city. This is a common trope in stories of this kind. And by the way, as I talk about the ancient city of Athens, do keep in the back of your mind, and maybe we can come back to this, the question of what, if anything, we might say about our own contemporary cities, and the ways in which we architecturalize our own aspirations as we look in this digital painting of New York City's architecture, not to the setting, but to the rising sun of our own bright future. So here, for instance, courtesy of Rafael Vignoli Architects and their rendering team at, uh, at D-Box, whose motto is building brands, creating desire, adding value. Here is your commanding view out over the city of New York as you consume uh, breakfast at 432 Park Avenue, briefly the world's tallest residential building, but not for long. With the steadily rising bar chart of the financial district's global success, rising into the clear skies above the limitless horizon of opportunity beyond. You can look up to this architecture, yes, and you can also look down from it, or look out from it with a certain clarity. But to return to Athens, there are other statues of gods scattered around this picture, too. Some of them known, some of them perhaps unknown. They are present in the landscape of the city. And again, those gods are here set against the more distant landscape of Attica, which is in itself, uh, in some regard, a sacred landscape. For those of you who know this is good Vincent Scully stuff. Uh, even if you could argue about the specifics. 
And of course we know that inside the Parthenon is Phidias's famous gold and ivory statue of Athena Parthenos. Athena Parthenos, maiden Athena. Here shown again in the most vivid available reconstruction. And it has been pointed out that this is a quite different representation of Athena to that which is known to have stood in the adjacent Erechtheon temple. Uh, that was a wooden cult statue which was a far older and more primitive thing which preserved memories perhaps of, of this sort of figure, a Bronze Age so-called plank figure from Cyprus. The figure in the uh, Erechtheon, which is over here, um, was again a figure of Athena, but in her role as Athena Polyas, Athena protector of the city. So again, the name, the naming of the god, the epithet, matters. But if we think about it, to focus on the statues alone is to limit ourselves too narrowly. The gods are present in the city not only through the statues in and around the buildings, but also through the buildings themselves. We might point not only to the Parthenon, but also to the Erechtheum, to the temple of Athena Nike, the little one, uh, Athena Nike, Athena Victorious, uh, and so on. All of these architectures, without exception, tell stories about the relationship between the city and its gods, not only through their elevated position uh, or their material quality, but also through the articulation of their surfaces. This is the stuff of architectural history and art history. Because the Parthenon, after all, is the classic example of a sculptural program in the service of an idea defining the articulation of the building. So on the front pediment up here, no longer uh, really visible, but described in this drawing on the left, take my word for it, on the front pediment, according to the traditional interpretation, uh, is represented the birth of Athena. On the rear, the foundation myth of the city, so the struggle for control of Athens between Athena and Poseidon, a sort of naming rights bidding war, won, of course, by Athena, and the physical traces of that struggle, uh, the traces in the surface of the rock of the Acropolis are preserved, by the way, within the precinct of the adjacent Erechtheon. In the metopes along the exterior are the stories of the battles between gods and giants, between Greeks and centaurs, between Greeks and Amazons, between Greeks and Trojans. And the frieze, here's a copy on the uh, building, and here's the original in London. The significance of the frieze is violently debated, and it's no longer taken for granted that it represents the annual Panathenaic procession of Athenian citizens winding their way up to the Acropolis and around the Parthenon, such that the real procession moves in step, as it were, with the figures on the frieze. But more recent competing conjectures still agree, I think, in tying the interpretation of the frieze to the story of Athens. In other words, the architecture spells out the narratives 
of Greek and Athenian identity. The architecture tells the people the story of who they are. And in this story, the citizens mingle with their gods. Now, the architecture of the Acropolis is not at all unique in this regard. And something similar ha happens, I think, in other examples of the historical architectures that have populated our imaginations. So take the Gothic cathedral, for example. Right? This is another chapter in every history of architecture, and I'm making a large jump here. Here's one of my favorite images, Lincoln Cathedral in an early 19th century photograph. Rising above the rooftops of the city that seems to gather around it. If for a moment we approach this image sympathetically, it seems to speak to us of a community that is built around a common purpose, both figuratively and quite literally, that takes shelter beneath the materialization of its higher commitments. In which, as is often said of the Gothic, the very architecture seems to point upward to something that transcends the horizontal, transactional demands of everyday urban life. And there is a consistency to the architecture of the houses that we rather like. From this angle, we cannot see rich or poor, privileged or destitute. We don't see the efforts at one-upmanship. In fact, all of the private houses seem relatively modest in comparison to the public architecture of the cathedral, Gothic cathedrals being built as we may remember uh, dimly by uh, public efforts. The, the architecture of the cathedral seems to have absorbed all of the city's care. And, and here we remember stories of Gothic cathedrals being built by the collective effort, efforts of the citizens, women and children dragging wagons of cut stone through the streets of the city and so forth. And, and we remember stories of the involvement of all of the different trades that contribute to the Gesamtkunstwerk, the comprehensive work of art that combines the work of the stonemason, with that of the carpenter, with that of the sculptor, with that of the artist in stained glass, with that of the uh, priest, with that of the musician, and with that of the citizens who live their lives around this center in a daily, in a regular daily and weekly and yearly rhythm that is itself regulated not by fire alarms, but by the striking of the bells that extend the presence of the building beyond the direct line of sight, and in turn allow you to measure out your life, your day and your days, in a sort of practice narrative that begins with the ceremony of baptism and ends with the ceremony of burial. And you've heard the bell tolling many times before, and as you hear it, you know that one day the same bell will toll for you. And then into this story, we could introduce the narrative of the gods, which tie those bells to a larger story still. And, and here, for a moment, I'm turning to images of uh, Notre-Dame de Paris, which has been 
brought back into our collective consciousness recently. Such that we could take even just the front facade and we could begin to read it. And if I had more time, we could start to go into the details of the ways in which the composition of that elevation is able to speak to us about the resolution of the horizontal and the vertical. Or we could speak about the approach to these three great portals. And we could start by saying that in this architecture, unlike, say, that of the Parthenon, the entrance is at ground level. That's important. The entrance is at your level. And as you enter into the building, you pass through a wall that has a certain thickness. And that thickness, that thickness is composed of other figures that stand there and look down at you. And they've been standing there for a long time. And they tell stories, right? They are witnesses to, to history. But they are also witnesses to, to a certain narrative. And it's not just any narrative. It's a narrative that speaks to you, that tells you the story of all time and all place. And it tells you the story of the redemption of creation, sin, redemption, the last judgment. Uh, in other words, it tells you the story of all things. And suddenly you find yourself, you find your body occupying a place within that narrative. We could spend, I think, a good amount of time on a slide like this one. We could do something similar with other architectures, I think, from all parts of the world. Why should we care so much about the architecture of, say, the Acropolis? And why has it sustained so much attention over the course of so many years? Like, why has it found its way into that collection of places in our world? Um, there are a few others, no doubt, that we could add to the list. Places that have captured the fascination of people who have never been there, for whom the experience of the time and the place of its creation would seem altogether distant. It's not only because the architecture itself is impressive, or clear in its articulation, or precisely dimensioned, or, or carefully put together, or historically significant, and so forth. Those things are all true, no doubt. But they are at least in part just a product of the significance that was attributed to the architecture in the first place at the time of its construction. I would argue that among the reasons why the Parthenon and other architectures that are comparable to it, among the reasons why they have sustained such attention is the fact that they seem so clearly to articulate, to embody the commitments of the cities that built them. They allow mortals to dwell in the shadow of the immortal. And close on the heels of this statement comes another. We look at our own cities and we are disappointed. 
We struggle to find architectures that do for us what we imagine these buildings to have done for them. Notice that these assertions, both of them, depend only tangentially on, on historical fact. We can be disappointed with the present in comparison with an imagined past, whether or not that imagined past really delivers on the imagination. This is not a particularly profound thought, uh, but I think it bears saying. And we can be disappointed by today's politics, say, whether or not yesterday's politics was any better. But either way, the legacy of history serves as a measure for our contemporary experience. So to attribute to Athenian thought certain ideas about democracy, such that Barack Obama makes a point of standing right here as he declares that, I quote, it is here in Athens that so many of our ideas about democracy, our notions of citizenship, our notions of rule of law began to develop and so forth. Those ideas can be assessed whether or not their implementation in fifth century Athens was all that it could have been. In other words, the glory of the past, however imaginary, serves to shine a light on the darkness of our contemporary world. It provokes certain questions. Here's a more recent representation of the Athens. This one is, is less idealized. It's more recent, yes, and perhaps more familiar. It's a photograph, not a painting. This is closer to our world, complete with air pollution, traffic, some decently banal architecture, and a sort of gloom descending upon the city, right, with the most noticeable light provided in the very foreground by the overscaled, backlit advertisement encouraging you to go somewhere else to find another antiquity. The landscape is no longer so obviously sacred. The gods are no longer so visible. But I'd like to suggest that there are still gods in our modern landscape, that the gods are less visible to us, partly because we have persuaded ourselves of their death, but that if we learn to look more closely, our architecture still reveal them, such that we can begin to name them. Why does any of this matter? And here I would appeal for a moment to Aristotle's politics. And remember that the word politics is tied to the word polis, the Greek word for city-state, or for our purposes today, to city. And I recognize that there are some complications here. You could point out that the Aristotelian city is not exactly like the contemporary city. And the word is often translated not as city, but as city-state, or even just state. But for our purposes today, I think we can stick with the word city. Aristotle begins with the premise that every community, I quote, every community is established with a view to some good. He then moves rapidly through the constitutive scales of community, from the family to the village to the city. And then, I quote, every community is established with a view to some good, for everyone always acts in order to obtain that which they think good. But if all communities aim at some good, the polis, or political community, which is the highest of all, and which embraces all the rest, aims at good in a greater degree than any other, and at the highest good. He acknowledges, by the way, that the city may actually come into existence for quite pragmatic reasons. Defense, say. But he doesn't stop there. He describes the polis, I quote again, originating in the bare needs of life 
and continuing in existence for the sake of a good life. Unquote. The beginning is one thing, but the end is something further. If you stop too soon, if the city loses sight of its end, of its commitment to the good life, it is in danger of losing sight to the, of, the, of the reason for its continued existence. By way of summary, we could say, I think, that Aristotle's politics insists that the chief end of the city is the best life possible for its citizens. Let me repeat that. The chief end of the city is the best life possible for its citizens. But this poses a problem. Now, maybe this is not true for the Morningside Institute. But on the whole, I think we struggle today to speak as, about such things as chief ends. They're too big, too absolute. And we've lost hope of building consensus. When I reread on the website of Morningside the promise that, quote, in this two-part lecture series, Kyle Dugdale will explore how a city's architecture reflects and shapes its ultimate concerns, end quote. I felt suddenly uneasy. What did I promise? How can we even begin to speak of such things as absolute concerns? How can we speak of the chief end of the city? tied to its summum bonum, its, its highest good. How can we do that without being able to agree on what is good? Without facing the question of the chief end of the individual citizen. And isn't that a lot like trying to pin down the, the purpose of life? And that used to be the case that you could ask someone an innocent question like, what is the chief end of man? And expect an answer. In fact, Generations of children in America were, were taught to recite off by heart an answer to precisely this question. But I'm not sure that we teach them that anymore. As someone said to me in a conversation last week, the most available answer to the question, what is the chief end of man, is, is why would I ask a question like that? And yet, if we are hesitant to speak of individuals who have failed to achieve their purpose in life. We do still speak of failing cities, perhaps the urban equivalent to failed states. In fact, we seem to speak of them today more than ever. America apparently has quite a few of them. And one reading about recent of, of recent debates about ostensibly prosperous places like New York City would suggest a growing concern that these cities too are heading toward Failure. Our gods seem to be failing us. Things get even worse, I think, if we place Aristotle's assertion that the chief end of the city is the best life possible for its citizens within what I take to be the broader context of his argument. Me, I have to acknowledge the work of the architectural theorist Philip Betts. His argument, which is that happiness is achieved through the cultivation of virtue that the cultivation of virtue takes place in relationship to others, that relationship to others takes place within a community, that small communities take their natural place as components nested within larger communities, and that the ultimate community of communities is the city. 
In other words, the city represents a sort of ideal for human life. Now, Aristotle shares this attitude, by the way, also, of course, with such things as Christian theology. Some of you will know that the biblical narrative opens in a garden and ends in a city, right? But, but it also shares it with more recent environmental pieties, for example, which recognize the importance of, of well-defined, well-functioning cities to nothing less than the survival of humanity, not to mention the well-being of the planet. So if we can't speak about the chief end of the city, we're in trouble. The city matters. There are elements of something similar, I think, in the sort of urban activism that has been visible elsewhere, too. So I just came back a couple of weeks back from Santiago, Chile, which is a useful example, I think, where toward the end of last year, uh, you've no doubt seen images like this in the news, activism escalated into a series of sometimes violent protests, which left their mark on the urban fabric. We expect such protests to happen in cities. In fact, it's hard today to imagine them happening anywhere else. As people have moved increasingly to cities in search of the good life, so those same cities have supplied the spaces where frustration at the absence of that good life is most violently expressed and expressed on the surfaces of the city. So this building, which is now the Gabriela Mistral Cultural Center, is a recent reworking on the right of a building on the left that was once the headquarters of the military under the Pinochet regime. So it's an articulation of power. Over the last few months, in a curious sort of twist, the surfaces of this architecture begin to accumulate narratives that record not only the performances happening inside the architecture, but also the protests happening outside the architecture. Spelling out, as it were, the desired identities of the citizens at ground level. Their commitments, their allegiances, their competing gods. These could be thought of, perhaps, as contemporary and more ephemeral equivalents, closer to the ground, to the narratives of stone that articulate the identities of the Athenians on the Acropolis. But here in a sort of negative rather than a positive mode, as, as protests against what is not the case. And with a little effort, I think you could begin to identify the gods that are being invoked. More recently still, over the past couple of weeks, in fact, those narratives have been erased with red paint, only to begin to emerge again over the last few days. Now, how might we begin to think about this from our own place in New York City? New York is important, not only because we happen to be here, but also because it has long been understood as a sort of case study, a symbol for the architecture of a prosperous global city and its capacity to accommodate its citizens. But where do we look for equivalents to the temples of Athens? New York doesn't have a central landmark quite like the Acropolis. It doesn't have a center, in fact. 
in the same way. Is this a problem? To live your life around the center shapes the nature of that life, right? This is true metaphorically, yes, of course, but it is also true spatially. We've already mentioned Lincoln and its cathedral around which the city seems to center itself. Like a glance at a place like Nördlingen in Germany, and there are many other places like this, extends this logic not only uh, to the urban plan as a whole, which, by the way, combines the central point of what is, in this instance, the church, with the defensive logic of the radial city walls. But that same logic extends to the landscape beyond, such that the agricultural land patterns round about take on a sort of radial character that defers to the, to the theocentric and also, by the way, geological authority of the center. On a much larger scale, to jump to a completely uh, different context. The, I think you could say that the practice of Islam is also shaped by daily habits of prayer, such that five times daily, wherever they are, the faithful turn toward Mecca to pray. If you imagine this for a moment on a, on a global scale, in a rhythm that systematically works its way around the world five times daily, the, the faithful submit their bodies to their God and to the spatial authority of a specific place, the holy city of Mecca. But New York City, most of it is a grid. Right? The same sort of grid that works its way across America from east to west, accommodating limitless expansion. The same sort of grid that accommodates the logic of Amazon distribution centers of parked cars, the logic of modernity, you might say. From, from that urban grid, we have extracted a void, yes, Central Park. But that's hardly an Acropolis, right? In fact, it's almost the antithesis. Who are the gods of the city? And where do we find them? What are the commitments that shape our architecture? We look at our cities, and we're disappointed. The biggest deal of our generation is Hudson Yards. Insert here a picture of Hudson Yards, right? The largest private real estate development in US history. I quote, built from the ground up, it's a triumph of culture, commerce, and cuisine. And of course, the, the residences at Hudson Yards offer such things as, quote, the city's most breathtaking views, and so forth. But by all accounts, we're inclined to be disappointed. We worry that the good of the city has been sacrificed to the goods of the city in the crassest possible sense. In a way that does not obviously lead to the sort of flourishing of which Aristotle spoke. If the chief end of the city is the best life possible for its citizens, it's not clear that this is it, despite the advertising. And this brings us back to the question of the gods of the city. And this is my final formal summary. Uh, three paragraphs I'm going to read to you. As I have suggested, it's a commonplace of urban and architectural history to assert that the cities of antiquity belonged to their gods and those gods to their cities. Athens belonged to Athena, Athena to Athens. 
just as, by the way, Babylon belonged to Marduk and Marduk to Babylon. Such accounts note the close association between the city's religion and its built environment, each one informing the other. The Parthenon shapes and is shaped by Athenian civic ritual, just as it is held to establish the primacy of Athena and of Athens over Persia and other cities in the Delian League. Indeed, the Babylonian Tower of Etimenanki, Tower of Babel, uh, grows in perfect step with the growing authority of Marduk, such that one may argue that its architecture makes possible the supremacy of its patron god. Now, such examples proliferate across the geographies of antiquity, and it would be inconceivable to study the ancient city without also studying its patronage, and without paying attention to the relationship between, the, city, between uh, the built environment and its patron gods. But this is true for today's city. It is not so clear. Or at least as a discipline, my discipline of architecture is accustomed to thinking of the contemporary city as a secular place, primarily, that can be understood by the architect and urbanist without recourse to the study of religion. Theology is certainly not a central element in the pedagogy of contemporary schools of architecture. Indeed, one might hazard that most architectural educators would struggle to articulate the centrality of the study of religion to the ancient, uh, to the modern city anything other than the most predictable context, say the design of explicitly sacred structures. But I would suggest that there's a robust argument to be made to the contrary. The contemporary city has merely replaced older with newer gods. As it has stepped away from its commitments to sacred spaces, as more conventionally understood, it has tended to sacralize other spaces to an unprecedented ex extent, and that's what I hope to come back to next week. The spaces of contemporary consumer culture, for example, take upon themselves both the attributes and the authorities of spaces of devotion. And in the process, the forms and rituals of our older sacred spaces are transferred wholesale to their newer counterparts. And I think the consequences are not always positive, as is becoming increasingly evident. If we go back one last time to that painting of Athens. But focus now on the foreground. We see what we are told is a representation of the Apostle Paul, delivering to the Athenians his famous speech on the Areopagus in which he refers to an altar to an unknown god and proceeds to name that god. Now I hasten to add that I myself do not often feel like the Apostle Paul. But I'm hoping that next week we could come back to the question of naming the unknown gods of the contemporary city. And at 7 o'clock, I'm going to stop there if that is okay.